Jonathan, one of the many things that I'm grateful to the college for, in addition to you know, allowing me to read things I probably would never have read, uh, is that there's always someone to talk to about something that's on my mind because we have a common ground and we're working on similar things. So I just discovered chatting with you the other day that we're both working in our own ways on a question of great interest to me, uh, the question of solitude. I happen to be working on uh, Thoreau's Walden. You probably don't know this about me, but I am a long-time Thoreauvian. In fact, in my youth, took off, uh, took a leave of absence from college to go to Concord and to study with a group of Thoreauvians. I even spent, you know, a summer uh, living in a replica of his hut. To this day, I sometimes think that was the life for me. But here I am at the college, uh, surrounded by people, people that uh, always share something with me. So I'm working on that question in Walden, and I discovered you're working on it too in a preceptorial with different authors, Goethe, Rousseau, and Somerset Maugham. So how, do, how did those three come together for you? Uh, well, the, the, the idea of solitude would be the common denominator. Um, the, the preceptorial is, is broadly on Rousseau's reveries of a solitary walker, which mm -hmm. frames the idea of someone first being rejected by society and later embracing the solitude for the sake of some kind of insight into his own existence, what he calls the, the sensation of existence or the pure experience of being. And he gets that in solitude? He yes. discovers it in solitude? Mm. Through the activity of what he calls reverie, mm -hmm. which is a kind of aimless drifting in thought. Uh, but we see this embodied in different ways in the in the novels, the Goethe novel, uh, uh, The Sorrows of Young Werther, mm -hmm. where we have an artist who has left his customary home and the frenetic activity of society in the city and has gone into a kind of country retreat mm -hmm. for the sake of pursuing his art. Which is what? Painting. Painting, okay. Um, and that meets with some uh, consternation and eventually a kind of horror. Uh, is the Moon and Sixpence is an artist who has mysteriously uh, departed from society. Well, he's, he's not an artist when he leaves society, but he leaves society for the sake of becoming an artist. And that is, is an astonishing story uh, of mm -hmm. a kind of triumph, but also is... Uh, calamity and, and disaster all, all at once. So, so all three of them explore this, this idea of solitude in different ways. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested with Rousseau, um, Reveries of a Solitary Walker. You know, Thoreau wrote essays on walking, and he loved to go on the pond, lie down in a canoe and just let it drift and think or dream or have a reverie. But I mean, how important is the walking, that is the body, for experiencing that moment of one's existence? It's an interesting question because he does entitle the book uh, a Solitary Walker, and the structure of the book is, uh, is, is based on walking. Uh, there, there aren't chapters, there are walks. Mm -hmm. First walk, second walk, third mm -hmm. walk. So that seems to be a, a crucial component of it, at least structurally. Um, in fact, some of the reveries are just as you described. There's even one where it's explicitly lying on his back in a canoe, mm. and which is a, a daily exercise that he'll do, uh, just drift out into the lake. Um, well, that's eerily similar. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if Thoreau read, Thoreau read that. Uh, and he speaks of once his body is floating, then the undulations of the water take the place of inner motions and his thoughts become detached 
He's still think he's still thinking thoughts, but they're just floating by, and they're they're, they're not connected to each other. And he just observes them, lets them go where they will, mm-hmm. and eventually he's overcome with this what he calls the, a deliciousness, the deliciousness of reverie, where his whole being is now just adrift, and he's no longer thinking about any particular thing or wishing for any particular thing. He's just experiencing existence in a in, in a immediate sense. Is it verbal? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, the another important aspect of this is reflecting on the reverie and recording it. And this is yeah. verbal. This, yes, he course. somehow got to write it down. Yeah. Um, so that becomes a question of why, if these reveries are so self-contained and delightful in themselves, why would they need to be written down and recorded as he does? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I sometimes wonder about this, that we at the college have our seminars and tutorials in a sedentary mode, as we're doing now. Um, but if, if walking or if some kind of motion is, is a stimulant to self-discovery towards the experience of reality itself, uh, maybe we should do more of that. Maybe we should move around, walk and talk. Of course, that would be hard with a large group. But I have gone on walks with colleagues um, nearby and uh, for some length and have found it quite conducive to talking. Yeah. There's something about the legs in motion or about being out there you know, under the sky and with a larger horizon and, um, and even not having to, you know, direct your gaze at the other person, but it's just the logos, the voice, while you can be, you know, looking at something else. Yes, I think there's good evidence that even Aristotle thought of philosophy as at times a peripatetic activity, uh, something that involved motion and walking about. Um, different uh, traditions of meditation include walking meditations. There's something in particular that becomes available through that kind of motion. Rousseau is explicit about this in some way in that in the reveries, in one of the reveries, this is the fifth walk, he says that utter stillness is dejection, is, a, is an emblem of death and can push one into just uh, abject melancholy, whereas frenetic motion is disruptive of any sense of self. Mm-hmm. So there's this in-between, which is a kind of stillness with regular motion. Mm-hmm. So walking could be that, or just the flow of water can be that, mm-hmm. where something essential becomes available. Yeah. Motion as life. Yeah, life is not frozen. Mm-hmm. It undulates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's the other interesting thing. The, the, the sense of being in motion, but not necessarily being, you know, on target towards some end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Could even, you could think of circular motion as being like this. Mm-hmm. It's motion which goes nowhere. Mm-hmm. Of course, one could walk by oneself. So why, I mean, what are other people for in, in our lives as self-knowers or in our lives as uh, painters or poets, or in your case, music, because you're a musician? Uh, what role do they play? Well, it's, I think we have to be careful and even the, the way the question is framed, I wouldn't want to say people are for something. Um, it sounds too utilitarian. Yeah, it, it, makes, it makes it almost sound like other people are instrumental to something else. They might be. Yes. For an artist in particular. It might be. I just wouldn't want to prejudice the question yeah. by you know, yeah. saying they are for something from the get-go. Um, it could be, just to take, go from the other extreme that we are 
communal beings that, that we only are fully ourselves in society or in families or in tribes, in cities. Um, maybe that's what the human is. This would be Aristotle's view, I think. Um, but if we're individuals fundamentally, which is a more modern idea, then uh, maybe the deepest things are only available in solitude. Mm -hmm. So I would just, I, I leave this as, for me, it's just an open question. I don't think there's any doubt that something is available in solitude that is not otherwise available, or mm -hmm. that is otherwise available. I don't, I don't think it is. I, I think the deepest kind of study and certainly the practice of music or the work of composition. Uh, and I imagine this is true for painters and poets as well, that that kind of artistic poetic work is something that is for many, for most perhaps, primarily executed in solitude. Yeah. Yeah. One is in touch with something that is quiet and available in, in a, in a in an interior way, not mm -hmm. in a discursive way. Um, mm -hmm. On the other hand, um, musical work, for example, is uh, at some point necessarily communal, whether this the, the solo performer who's performing for other people or the ensemble, where not only is there an audience, but there are other musicians even for the composer, if the work is to be performed, the composer works with musicians. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. this is another aspect of the, of the artwork is translating it, communicating it, uh, orchestrating it with human beings. Mm -hmm. So it becomes communal one way or another. There's no danger that it'll remain in solitude. Similarly, even if it's true that the deepest philosophical insights happen in solitude, um, it's got to be true, at least maybe this is, um, I say it's got to be, I, maybe that's more of an article of faith. It seems to me that in dialogue, conversation, these ideas take on a character that is, whether or not it's the deepest form, is necessary. Uh, private inner reflections might be delicious and wonderful and, I, and perhaps there are spiritual implications that are important and crucial but whatever is true there's something powerful about putting them out into the world having them challenged refuted mm -hmm. uh, one's own thinking is stretched other people join into it and maybe they too benefit from this kind of thinking. So uh, dialogue is crucial for yeah. philosophy. Yeah. So I was thinking as you were saying all that, that um, even if we're uh, just readers of a book, you know, that we do alone, but those are words and we're thinking in terms, we're thinking with words. <clears throat> so we're having a kind of conversation. That in itself is, is communal. It's not strictly speaking solitary. There, is, there are words coming from somewhere, calling up words in ourselves which want to go somewhere. You're, you're thinking that the words themselves are yeah. something so outside as, of solid, solitude. Yeah, and so far as we're verbal beings, um, unless, as you were saying earlier, the reverie is completely nonverbal and has some other purpose. But you know, if we're reading, if we're thinking, if we're... Um, uh, uh, well, obviously talking to ourselves even, then we're doing something that seems to me that is that is not strictly speaking solitary. That's that is, interesting. Yeah. It's it's got an audience, you know, a speaker and a listener. Even if that's internal. Yeah, even if we're not yet social, you know, we're not So the word implies society. Yes, exactly. The word implies society. So if we're verbally alone with ourselves, we're not really alone. And I'm wondering if the artists in the books you're reading, or in your own case, um, are like that, that there's some kind of, maybe some kind of doubleness going on all the time, insofar as one is 
you know, participate involved in some sense of one's own existence, but at the same, and that, that's one thing, but there's another part of oneself, which is listening to it and articulating it or getting ready to articulate it, recognizing that it's a, it's a source, you know, a creative source of something, poetry, music, dialogue, painting. Does that make sense? It, it does. Um, <clears throat> and I think of it just in terms of, of, of Rousseau again. Um, there is a doubleness in that uh, he is writing these things down. And not only the, the, the mechanical aspect of just writing it down, but there's even the reverie itself seems to toggle between this immediate experience of existence and being aware that there is an immediate experience of existence. Those are two different things. And it's, it's, there's the experience and then there's the awareness of the experience, which is already a doubleness. Rousseau watching Rousseau have the experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, watching oneself have the experience. But could one add one other thing that it's with a sense of oneself as creative. So that, you know, the time in which one is doing this is itself a kind of material that's going to be sculpted or painted or verbalized. You know. well, maybe, could you say more about what you mean by creative? I mean uh, that uh, one is making something out of uh, this this sense of being, a sense of existing, and the sense of being uh, out of the darkness itself, out of a sense that nothing is there until I do something with it. Yeah. So <clears throat> this becomes difficult to talk about uh, in a straightforward way. Because um, I that what the, you, your clarification was helpful. I do distinguish the creative component from the making component. Mm -hmm. So, and this this may play right into the the idea that you're exploring here. So, for one, uh, what is the actual creative moment? That's sort of ineffable. It's um, Maybe divine, even maybe godlike. Yeah, this would be more of the, the deeply yeah. solitary experience of mm -hmm. um, you know one has to be in a maybe there's a certain state in which this becomes available. It's the kind of thing that you can't make happen. You can put the sails up, mm -hmm. but you can't make the wind blow. So you be, you're you're you cultivate a sense of preparedness for it. Mm -hmm. uh, then that can happen maybe if you're lucky. But that's not the artwork. That's just what people might call the inspiration. Where do these things come from? That's hard to say. Who knows? Yeah. But once that's there and somehow in, in, in the body, in the flesh, then there's the, the aspect of craft, mm -hmm. of making. Yeah. Now, whereas that first thing, that inspiration is sort of profoundly solitary, the making is sort of you know, solitary in a mundane sort of way is you know yeah. you, you need a, you need something you need not to be disturbed but not because of it's not the same thing as the more contemporary. it's a work yeah you're busy you know and there's there's something you have to do there's a process and yeah well that that makes me wonder also about again about the doubleness um that is as a human being one has to live in the world as well one has to feed oneself one has to house oneself clothe oneself provide energy and warmth maybe take care of a family you know you know fulfill one's civil duties all these things and this was very much by the way part of Thoreau's concern in writing Walden because people were asking him questions um, when he was living out there in the woods about each of those things what do you eat you know, how do you stay warm? And are you lonely? And um, are you afraid of, you know, what happens at the in the night? All these things. Um, and he answered them one by one. Um, 
I mean, how do I was interested in in hearing a little bit about how you uh, satisfy those needs and concerns, uh, um, all those practical matters. You're a family man, as I am, uh, so there's a lot of solitary work that has to be done as a tutor or as a musician, um, alongside all of these other things that call upon us just as embodied human beings. So do you end up, how do we do it? You know, it's kind of impossible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, so this, there's, this is sort of a particular idiosyncratic um, uh, answer that's relevant to both of us as tutors. Um, I, I suppose there's some version of this that applies to other professions, occupations. Um, so I don't mean this is anything universal, but uh, so how, how can one be a tutor and be a human being at the same time? And you're right, not possible, but there's, um, you can, one can approximate one or the other. Uh, I, I, think, I, I think there's a, a certain purist sort of tutor where I think the idea is the life of the tutor is essentially a monastic life. Um, and I, my sense is that was more true in the mid 20th mm -hmm. century, maybe the late 20th century, mm -hmm. less true now, but yet there's some sense in which this is, 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 is held on. And I honor that it, mm -hmm. it's, it's not the life for me. Um, so there's gotta be a different way. Um, in my case, the approach was to take things in stages. When I first came to the college, I was single. I had, I was a, a musician, a composer before I went into graduate studies that prepared me for this. Um, I set that aside. So for a period, I was a tutor and only a tutor. And this was necessary mm -hmm. uh, to do this kind of work. It takes years to go through the program and learn these things that you've never studied before. Yeah. Um, immersing yourself in the work. Yeah, that's part of what I meant by it's impossible. Yeah. It becomes doubly so when then you try to live a human life on top of it with family yeah, and other obligations. Yeah. So you did it, you sort of staged it. Yes, I was, yeah. I did this, there was seven years yeah. of being a tutor and only a tutor. Yeah. Then I brought back music in an elementary way. Yeah. I just relearned, I took a new approach to <clears throat> performance and composition. Uh, I took on a new teacher to, to help me find a new way. Mm -hmm. And that was a slow process, just starting over again. But have you ever wondered about wanting to chuck one or more of those and just give yourself entirely, wholly, completely to one thing? Yes, yes. Just to be the best you can at that one thing. Make it perfect. Well, uh, that's the a phrase, by the way, in a poem by Yeats that has stuck with me a long time. It's called the choice. I'll just tell you the first two lines. The intellect of man is forced to choose perfection of the life or of the work. And he goes on to describe the consequences of choosing the latter, the work, perfection of work. Um, in his case, work of a poet, because he gave up family life for that. But, you know, it's a respectable, is it not a respectable position that he's taking? You must choose. Respectable, tricky word. I think... Uh, serious. It's serious, yes. And maybe even honorable. Uh, it, it Maybe if you're that talented, necessary. perhaps necessary. I, I understand. And I, this is the, the third book in the preceptorial that I just described, The mm -hmm. Somerset Mom. Uh, uh, the moon is sixpence. So here is a middle-class man, very successful, a wife, two children. Mm -hmm. And in his mid-40s, he vanishes abandons his family, 
People are appalled. People are amazed. People are bewildered. And they assume he's run off with a woman. Is, is, people figure out that he's in Paris. He's, he's left England, has, has gone to Paris. Uh, they assume he's run off with a woman. We, our narrator tracks down this man, whose name is Strickland, and figures that there is no woman. That's not it at all. He's suddenly had an epiphany that he must paint. Yeah. And, and he's never painted before. So he has a shabby attic apartment. He's found a teacher and he's teaching himself and working with a teacher to paint. No one thinks it's any good. And he does, that doesn't matter to him. It's not a matter of whether or not this is good work. It must be done. That's strange, that it shouldn't matter. Is he good? It turns out that he's one of the geniuses of, of his era. Yeah. The, book, the beginning of the book is the narrator perusing scholarship on the influence of this painter. Uh, he's, everyone judges him to be a, a monumental figure in art history. Mm -hmm. uh, so apparently he is very good. Only one person it, through most of the story recognizes his genius. Uh, Strickland himself is, is, seems unconcerned with whether or not he's good or whether anyone will like it. Mm -hmm. He, he's a, he obsesses with each painting as he's working on the painting. And after he finishes, he has no interest in it at all. He just lets it, he abandons it. Does he have any guilty conscience? He, has, he seems to have no guilty conscience. So he's chosen perfection of work out of some sudden realization that he simply has to do it that way. Yes. Uh, otherwise, what, he would not be living his, his you know, the, the life he was made for? Or? I don't think we hear him say anything like that. He simply says, it's necessary. Yeah. You must do okay. it. He is clear that he, and he's explicit about this, he has zero interest in what anyone else thinks. Mm -hmm. the, the, uh, well, why couldn't he take family with him to Paris? It, from his point of view, uh, any sort of family obligation or even the obligations to a lover are incompatible, incompatible. with the all-consuming need to work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, what happens to him? Uh, we, he's confronted with people who t tell him, aren't you concerned about being impoverished? Don't you care what, that everyone will despise you? Thoreau uh, had similar questions. Yeah. And it, what about when you get old and you need yeah. help? You'll have no one. Mm -hmm. And his only response to this is that <clears throat> what I did in the past is not important. I'm not haunted by my memories. And the future is all imagination. Uh, what, what, then, what, in, what then is there? What do you care about? And he pauses and he replies, uh, the eternal present. Wow. What's he been reading? <laughs> he is a reader, but we're not told what he reads. Yeah. Yeah. The eternal present. One often hears that kind of expression or the eternal moment, you know. And I kind of know what it is and I probably had them. But I also am skeptical about the phrase. Um, and it's, and the possibility of living a life that way. But do you think he does it? <clears throat> Seriously? The portrayal in the novel is that he does. Mm -hmm. He eventually ends up on a island in the South Pacific, takes a local girl to be a wife, has a family, lives in a little bungalow mm -hmm. and paints. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Because I think that if he indeed has the eternal present, then he's done, I think, what Thoreau wants to do as well in Walden, is to answer the big question, you know, weren't you lonely and aren't you afraid, i.e. of death and dying alone? Um, and 
you know, having lived a life that leaves nothing and means nothing, then he's answered it. I'm eternally present. I can be sympathetic in some way to the idea of uh, there's nothing to fear in death. That's not the problem. Um, I can understand being, being fearful of violent death. That's, that is terrifying. Um, but is more or less within, within some notion of society, one doesn't have to worry about violent death. What, what there, what's left is growing old alone where you need help and mm -hmm. you sort of have a protracted suffering mm -hmm. in obscurity. And this does seem to be a real concern, but not to Strickland. And in, in any case, in his, he uh, does have help. He, he has a little family in the end. They're, they're not within European society. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're something primitive. Mm -hmm. He's recaptured some kind of primitive existence. Mm -hmm. And he's still painting. He still, he still paints just mm -hmm. for himself. He has no idea of the impact he's having on the world. That's extraordinary. Art. I mean, does any artist do it just for himself? What, what does that mean? Yeah. I, th yeah. I think there is something to the idea of being transfixed by the beautiful yeah. and moving at the behest of trying to bring that into view for oneself. Yeah. Now, is that selfish? Is it an act of devotion? Mm -hmm. Do we make a distinction there? Because a moment ago we were saying <laughs> that, you know, you can be alone, but insofar as something verbal is happening or going to happen, it is by definition um, not alone. There's a kind of doubleness going on. There's, there's some way it's reaching out into a, uh, an expressive <clears throat> form that is that requires an audience. But an internal audience. Yeah, well, an internal one that's uh, a second self. Right, and, and I, th that's an interesting uh, idea, which I, it seems to me is correct. I don't know that it addresses this, this problem that we're talking about. Uh, even if it's true that mm -hmm. in the private contemplative or artistic activity, there is a doubleness. Mm -hmm. That second self can't help you when you've fallen down the stairs. Right. So it's, I think that's the practical, that's ultimately the, the critic of the, of the, mm -hmm. of the artist or mm -hmm. of the, the, the solitary figure will say, what, what are you gonna do about that? Mm -hmm. What's your answer? And uh, yeah, it, 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 are we going to let that sort of concern be a major player in this predicament? Yeah. So, so what happens to Strickland in the end, since we're sort of talking about ends and fear of the end and you know, overcoming that fear and ultimate questions about one's life as an artist or as a human being, what happens to him? Yeah. Any lessons for us? I don't know if it's a lesson or how to apply the lesson. It, it is amazing, though. I think it, it is. It's, it, there's something touching and powerful about this ending. Um, there are no witnesses beyond his immediate family to these later years, but there is a physician who lives in a nearby town, and a family member summons the music, the, the the physician at. at at one point, and we hear his report of what he sees when he goes there. And Strickland and his family now have invented their own language, or maybe more precisely, they've reverted to some form of an earlier form of English. They're speaking essentially King James English to each other. And the, the physician diagnoses Strickland with leprosy. Oh, well. And Strickland says, how, you know, how long will this take? And he says, it could be three weeks, it could be three months, but 
you know, your days are numbered. Uh, and he resolves that he'll go off into the mountains to die by himself, but his wife won't hear of it. She says, thou art my man. Wheresoever thou goest, I shall go. This is the island wife. Yes. Yeah. And he can't persuade her not to come with him, so he resolves to stay. And he embarks upon a what ends up being a two-month, three-month project. He paints the, the, all the walls of the, of the bungalow they live in. And when he's finished, he just sits in the dark in this room, lit by candles, looking at his work. And his instruction to his wife is that after he dies, after he dies, that she shall burn the house down and destroy this. So he has his sort of highest moment there at the end, sitting on the floor, gazing at this creation. Um, the physician goes back and sees this before it's destroyed. And he reports that it's like a, a garden, some sort of um, creation emblem. There are plants that are transforming into other kinds of plants. There are animals coming out of the trees. There are naked human beings milling about. So Strickland has created this, this creation scene. In the surrounding walls of the house. That he's enveloped himself in. And she burns it at, his, at his request. Yes, he's meant to be the only, only one to receive this. I have to be, I have to think of uh, the creation myth in the Bible. God works at, for six days, creates it, pronounce, uh, pronounces it good, but then later destroys it, or most of it, yeah, in yeah. the flood, because it turns out to be evil, owing to man. So is there some problem of evil in, in the story of Strickland? That's interesting. I had That had not occurred to me. Uh, but what about in relation to that earlier question about conscience, about... You know, abandoning society, family, other obligations to pursue one's necessary and mostly solitary calling. Or Rousseau, who's often pointed out that he was a terrible man, you know, abandoned I don't know how many children to the orphanage. Um, you know, is that, is that something present in the Strickland story or something, even if not, something that you think we should think, one should think about? I, I don't think that, well, if it's that the destruction of the artwork is a kind of repudiation of it, I don't think that's it. I think it's mm. something, uh, and this is mysterious, but my sense is it has to do with this is really just for me. And I think we can see this mm. in Rousseau as well, because he's writing these reveries, he says, he reports this to the reader, that he's writing this for himself. He means this to be a record of these experiences, which he can read later in life so that he can be a friend to his older self. And he mm -hmm. has no interest in anyone else reading them. He doesn't really want them to be read by other people. It's, it's suspicious in that yeah. he does carefully uh, preserve them and edit them, and they're, they're in a final form. So it does, one can't quite believe that he's serious, but at least that's what he says. That would require having no vanity um, and a certain confidence of some kind that it, it doesn't matter whether other people think it's good or not. It's just to satisfy me. Yes. The ego and vanity of, of artists or philosophers is hard to measure or calculate. On the one hand, it, there is this idea of people writing things that change the world, influence people, producing artworks that people admire, mm -hmm. and you gain a kind of fame or fortune from being an artist, um, or a kind of adoration of students or readers in being a philosopher. Um, that seems problematic just on the face of it. It seems inconsistent with the content of the work. 
We know that many artists and intellectuals are like that, and it seems not to diminish the quality of their work. Somehow this maybe is an occupational hazard, mm -hmm. but it does suggest the possibility at least of a truly authentic practitioner of these arts. Uh, it does suggest to me again, the divine, that is something that is self-sufficing. I mean, maybe what Aristotle says about the contemplative life the ideal contemplative life um, is solitary and is, insofar as possible, ongoing, uninterrupted, undistracted. You know, the fact that we have bodies and we get tired and have all these other needs we've been talking about sort of propels us into society for recreation's sake, for help in solving those bodily needs. But for Aristotle, the goal is to be divine. Um, so it sounds like Strickland was getting close to that. Yeah, I don't know what to say about that, uh, at least in terms of Aristotle. It's true in the ethics, or at the end of the ethics, Aristotle says the contemplative life is the highest life. Uh, in the politics, he indicates that the mm -hmm. political life is the highest life. Um, but it's also true in the ethics that he indicates that friendship is a necessary component of, of the good life. So friendship is a kind of community, it's a mm -hmm. little community. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know about just the monastic solitary philosopher for Aristotle. I think there's something, I have to admit, there's something in Aristotle which points in that direction. Mm -hmm. But he, but still there's mm -hmm. an explicit acknowledgement that friendship is a very high good mm -hmm. in Aristotle. Strickland doesn't seem to care at all about friendship. Mm -hmm. I may be overstating it. There, it's a pretty yeah. rich novel. There are other things that might point in a different direction, but in the end, it seems there's something to that. But Aristotle, I think, is also clear that a friend is another self. So it's really, an, it's an enlarging of the boundaries yeah. of one's own self, rather than some you know, some alien influence that might get you off your, your path. Yeah, for, if, is friendship a little community or an expanded self? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, the other thing that occurred to me while you were talking, um, I'll tell you a little story about a student I had 10 years ago when I taught in Iraq. I was teaching Euclid to Kurds and Iraqis at the American University of Iraq. I had in the front row of my class uh, a very sh small um, Arabic woman, always veiled, never said anything, just looked at the board, listened to what was going on in the demonstrations, and was writing everything down. Okay. Not the way we do things here, but there it was, it was acceptable. I gave them as an assignment, um, an, uh, an ongoing assignment, to keep a journal. So that's why she was writing things down and to turn in the, your journal of demonstration and reflection on what we were doing at the end of the semester. At the end of the semester, she turns in a book. It had three scripts, Arabic, Kurdish, and for me, English. It was done in color, colored pencils. She used compasses and rulers to make diagrams. It was, and the script was beautiful you know, the words of description of the demonstrations. Uh, it was a work of art. But the thing that got me, um, opened the cover of this. On the cover page, she had written in the three languages, simply this, for the glory of God. For her, that was, that was it. I don't know that she learned much math. Um, I'd rather doubt it, but she created something. Mm -hmm for the glory of God. That yes. was it. So that, when you talked about Strickland just creating this beautiful house, this creation myth and sitting there, that occurred to me. Mm -hmm. That makes sense to me when, you know, if, when one says, I'm doing it for myself. So, but self, as a 
So as a servant to some higher thing, an act of devotion. Self in union with God. Yeah. Yeah, for that glory. Not personal glory, but for something higher that one identifies with. And all the other stuff just doesn't matter. You know, what people think. She didn't really care what I thought. I think about that often when teaching students here, because that's not what it's about here, or is it? D devotion to something higher? Yeah. Or what are we doing in a math class when we're demonstrating? What are we doing when we're sitting around a seminar table talking about what are we doing? What's it for? Well, that's another kind of question. I, mm -hmm. we, the things we've been talking about in this conversation are, are sort of speculative visions of the artist and the philosopher. Uh, we might have anecdotal things to say about that, but um, liberal education as such might be a different kind of project. Mm -hmm. yeah. It is communal for sure. But if it's about, in her case, saving one's soul, then you know, maybe other people just aren't a part of that. Maybe they get in the way. It's about one's relation to the source of being for her. Uh, and then solitude might be the way to go. But if that being isn't present, you know, then, then maybe one wants other people around one to take its place. Yeah, I think, I think there are aspects just to use the example of uh, a tutorial within a liberal education institution, uh, there could be jumping off points into this sort of private experience, which I think we could acknowledge that without saying that the class itself was meant for that purpose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it, I, I'm, it becomes a a larger, more vexed question as, as to whether liberal education as a whole would be for the sake of something like that, or rather for some civic purpose or making people good citizens, as it were. Um, mm -hmm. That's a very different vision. There is something that we uh, cultivate with students, or at least try to cultivate, which is that, uh, well, one, to engage in the conversation of a seminar, for example, requires some kind of private preparation. So go as deep as you can privately. Maybe that's not going to be contemplation in the sense of uh, Aristotle's highest life or reverie in the sense that we were speaking of with Rousseau, still, it's a kind of taste of that solitary experience of confronting being mm -hmm. to the degree that we're able. And the sort of practical version of that is something that we might call study. Don't just read the book, study the book, mm -hmm. where you, you're, you're turning formulations, you're reading the same page three times, four times, reading a paragraph multiple times, reading a sentence, thinking about a single word. Mm -hmm. So a kind of contemplation. Then after you've done that, you bring that into the seminar. And then without an ax to grind, without an agenda, you participate in a conversation. You don't have to sort of translate or explicitly carry your private study into the seminar, but you're prepared to engage at a high level at that point. So that's a kind of bridge between the private and the public in the context of a part of I, liberal education. I think that is indeed what we try to do. Uh, it's certainly what I try to do. And uh, I mean, the students get this as freshmen pretty early with Socrates, that the value of, of um, talking with other people in seminar or tutorial is, is to be refuted um, when you're wrong or when you haven't thought through something 
clearly enough or deeply enough or considered, you know, the other possibilities, which is almost always yeah, the case. Yeah, it's one of the most valuable experiences in a yeah. seminar is to sort of put something out there, have someone tug on it and realize this isn't right at all. Yeah. It's a beautiful experience. But then there's that, you know, T.S. Eliot line that I'm sort of worried about, brings us back to the solitary artist. That's not what I thought at all. That's not what I meant at all. Mm. That is, you're being misunderstood. And uh, instead of better understanding oneself, one's, you know, being taken away from oneself into someone else's reality. So how to be, you know, properly refuted and guided, corrected, mm. to discover one's own being and to guard against being appropriated or, you know, taken away from oneself. That's, is, is that the art that we're trying to achieve as liberal learners and maybe as artists, even when we're on our own? Yes, how to, how to be unfrozen in a committed identification with a particular thought or formulation and, and to be wrong and not mm -hmm. lose oneself in the wrongness of one's views. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems to me, it, you know, Finally, we've been talking about very mysterious things, you know, and I think that's in, way, in a way where we started because you know, I did not know at the beginning of our conversation <clears throat> what words would come out and you didn't know and yet they came from somewhere and they went somewhere. You know, I'm reminded of Moses when he's given the task of by God in the burning bush to go to speak to Pharaoh and he says, well, what am I going to say? And God says, where do you think speech comes from? Something to that effect. And uh, uh, that's just a man in a bush. So that's part of the magic and the mystery of what we're doing at the college and what we've done for just for the past hour here. I don't know where the words are coming from or where they're going, but they are coming from somewhere. And I think they've gone, they've taken me somewhere new. So. Thank you very much. This was interesting. You've given me a lot to think about as I continue to work on my beloved Thoro. <laughs> Continuing the Conversation is a 20-episode web and podcast series produced by the St. John's College Communications Office in partnership with 12FPS and A Warehouse Productions. To continue the conversation with St. John's College, which offers a bachelor's degree in liberal arts, in-person and online master's degrees in liberal arts and Eastern classics, as well as Summer Academy for high school students and Summer Classics for lifelong learners, go to sjc.edu.